Tonight we continue our study of the Epistle of Certainties, 1 John. Also, as we have mentioned, the Epistle has been designated the Epistle of Love. So much so because of the emphasis that is given in this great Epistle on the subject of love, the subject we discussed this morning as we began a study of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. John indeed was the apostle of love, who manifested love for the Lord, manifested love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, and tradition tells us that when he was uh, an advanced in age uh, apostle, that he would sit by the wayside or sit close to where the brethren would be passing or uh, as they were coming by or meeting in some situation that was described, and it's tradition, but nonetheless, it depicts the kind of attitude that John had. And it is said that as they would pass, he would say, little children, love one another. Love one another. And indeed, that is an admonition worthy of our following. We're looking in chapter 5 tonight, beginning at verse 6 of First John, chapter 5, nearing the conclusion, as we said, of this epistle. And in verse 5, as we concluded last time, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And now verse 6, this is he, that is Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. That's the one uh, whom John is speaking of here as he says, this is he, Christ in other words. And here in verse 6, we have what is clearly uh, conceded to be the most difficult passage in all of 1 John, and one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. There have been many commentators who have set forth various uh, uh, ideas about what John is writing about here. This is he, that is clearly Christ, who came, but what coming is under consideration? Well, I think we could clearly uh, tell that it was the first advent of Christ, his first uh, coming into this world. The context would, would clearly show that to be the case. But what about coming by water and blood? What is meant by his coming by water and blood. Well, rather than going into a lot of detail about various positions, I'll simply set forth the one that I believe to be the most logical and scriptural conclusion that we could come to about how he came by water and blood. And that is that you keep in mind that John is writing, remember, in a setting where Gnosticism had reared its head and where there were those who sang that Jesus never came at all in terms of deity becoming flesh, that that was an impossibility, you remember, in the mind of the Gnostics who said deity couldn't become flesh. And so John is setting forth clear-cut testimony that he did come, that he did prove himself to be the Christ, that there is testimony to the fact that he is the Christ, and that he became flesh. What is that testimony? That testimony is that he came by water and blood. Water 
I believe to be a reference to his baptism. The baptism and the testimony that was given, remember, at that baptismal scene when Jesus came to John and John was hesitant about baptizing Jesus and Jesus said, suffer it to be so, for thus it fulfills us, uh, behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. It is just that we do this. And John then, of course, did baptize Jesus. And you remember what took place. On that occasion, when Jesus came from Galilee to John and John tried to prevent him and Jesus said, permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, then he allowed him. Then Jesus, verse 16 of Matthew chapter 3, then Jesus, when he had been baptized, came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I believe John refers to this very incident, the baptism of Jesus, when he says that he came by water, first of all. In other words, he was baptized, and at that baptismal scene, the voice from heaven came and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove clearly fulfilling what John had been told would occur when the Christ came. And it would be a means by which John would identify that this was the Christ. If you go back to John chapter 1, verse 30 beginning, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, the Christ. For he was before me, the Christ. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so John said it would be told him that the one who came and upon whom he saw the Spirit descending, he would know indeed this is the Christ. I believe this same John here in this text refers to that incident, the baptism of Jesus, when he says he came by water. And his baptism and the testimony that accompanied his baptism clearly shows that Jesus is the Christ. But what about blood? The baptism in water was the beginning of the earthly ministry of Christ. Remember, right after his baptism, he went into the wilderness and was there 40 days and was tempted by Satan. That was the beginning of his earthly ministry. What was the end of his earthly ministry? And what was the testimony that was given concerning the fulfillment of his ministry? Remember, he himself on the cross said, it is finished. And John 19, 34 says, that soldier took the spear and pierced his side and there came forth blood and water. Not water and blood, but blood and water. Some say John 19, 34 is the reference here. I don't think so. But I think the reference is to the blood that was shed in his death. Thus the testimony that Jesus, the Christ, came to earth 
inhabited a fleshly body, contrary to what the Gnostics were teaching falsely, is attributed to by his baptism and the testimony that was given there, and attributed by the blood that was shed in his death. That blood, incidentally, that we are reminded of constantly every Lord's Day when we partake of the Lord's Supper, and as we drink the fruit of the vine, we are reminded of that blood that was shed on Calvary that made possible the reconciliation for our sins. And so I believe that this is indeed the case that John is saying he came initially, was proved, testified to be the Christ by the baptism, his baptism in water, and the approval that was given from heaven on that occasion, and then the shedding of his blood. And look at everything that took place at Calvary and the darkness that fell, the rending of the veil of the temple, the earthquake, all of that, testimony from heaven itself, this is my beloved son who has now fulfilled his mission on earth. And then John adds in this verse, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. How do we know of the things of which we have just spoken? We know about them because the Spirit has borne witness of them. The Spirit has revealed these things to us through the Word. And so we have three witnesses. The water, his baptism, the blood, his shedding of his blood and his death, and we have the Spirit who bears witness that these things are true. Then we come to verse 7. In the King James and in the New King James, and I don't know how many other translations, but if you have the American Standard Translation, you will not see this verse in the American Standard in other translations. Why? Because there is precious little manuscript evidence for including this verse in Scripture. Should that be problematic for us? No. In fact, just the opposite. If there's precious little manuscript evidence for, for this insertion at 1 John 5 and verse 7, it tells us that there is a, an abundance of manuscript evidence for all that we have in the Word of God and that we can rely upon it as being the Word of God. But here is a verse that according to the manuscript evidence is sorely, sorely lacking in terms of its authenticity. Does that mean that there's something here that uh, is inserted that is, uh, is consequential, so that is not inserted elsewhere? In other words, if we take this verse away, are we losing a truth that we can't find in any other part of Scripture? Absolutely not. This truth that there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, that is affirmed throughout Scripture. But this particular passage is a very late insertion and is present only in one or two manuscripts. And Erasmus, in his Greek New Testament, in the third edition, put it in the third edition, from which the King James translators translated that work. And thus the New King James, being a, re being a revision of the King James, also includes it. But it is lacking in all but one or two manuscripts, and thus is missing from translations like the American Standard Translation. Erasmus was asked by a friend why he had not included this verse in his third edition of his Greek New Testament. 
And he said, if you can find it in one, if you can find this in one manuscript, I'll put it in. And that's what they did. They found it in one, a very late 15th or 16th century, and they included it. That's the research that I have seen on it, and if you'd like to research it further, that's fine, and certainly that would be interesting. But it should not be disconcerting that this verse is missing from several translations because nothing, nothing is left out by leaving out this verse that we don't have in abundance everywhere. And it simply reminds us that 99.9% of what we have here in this book is clearly proven to be from God. The few things such as this particular verse that we would need to leave out of a translation based upon its lacking manuscript evidence, the, the material that would be left out would be so minuscule and so insignificant that it would not in any way affect our salvation one way or the other. And so we can have full confidence that we have everything we need and that God in his providence has provided that. But God in his providence also chose a mechanism by which to perpetuate his word that is a non-miraculous mechanism, that is, copyist who copied carefully the scriptures down through time. And they did so beautifully, but not without a few copyist errors. Errors that are of, as we said, absolutely no consequence to any point of faith or any matter that affects our eternal salvation. There are more manuscripts in existence today by which we can determine that we have all that God intends for us to have than for any other major literary work that has ever existed. Far more evidence for this book than for the works of Shakespeare, for the works of Homer, for the works of any other writer. We can know that we have the Word of God. But here we do have a very isolated incident where the manuscript evidence for this verse is so sorely lacking that all the evidence says it should not have been included. So we leave it out, and it is of no consequence whatsoever. The American Standard simply moves from verse 6 to this verse. And there are three that bear witness. They leave out on earth. There are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. In other words, getting us back to verse 6 that there are three that bear witness. He came by water and the blood, and the Spirit testifies of this. This is a reinforcement of that statement back at verse 6, where he says there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and his point here is this. These three agree as one. In other words, their testimony cannot be refuted. You have the baptism of Christ, you have the blood that was shed in his death, testifying to the fact that he is exactly who he claimed to be, and you also have the testimony of the Spirit. And we have that testimony in written form today. Now, here's the argument that John makes based upon what he has just written. He says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified 
of his son. Everything he has said up to this point tells us that the witnesses that tell us that Jesus Christ is exactly who he claimed to be, so that we can be absolutely certain that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that testimony is greater than the testimony of men. But his point is, we do accept or receive the witness of men, do we not? Absolutely we do. We accept reliable testimony from other human beings, and we should. But if we do, and we do, then John's argument is, from the lesser to the greater, if we accept the lesser testimony, how can we possibly deny the greater testimony? The testimony that comes through the Spirit, through His Word, that tells us that Jesus is the Christ. And in verse 10 he writes, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. How is that witness in each of us through this book right here? This book that produces faith in you is that witness in you. It is the Word. It is that living and abiding Word that you have believed and obeyed. If you're a Christian tonight, that is the witness in you, the witness of the Word. He goes on, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. How so? Because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. What John is saying is, if you don't believe this, you've made God a liar. Doesn't that tell us how absolutely crucial this book is? How absolutely crucial it is that we spend time with this book, that we allow this book to produce within us what John is writing about here, and that is that, that witness or that testimony, that living word that abides forever within us, that produces within us a strong and abiding faith, that produces within us the kind of love about which we spoke this morning, the kind of love about which John writes here in this great epistle the kind of love that will motivate us to love others, that will motivate us to serve God, that will motivate us to be a joyful, peaceful people, enjoying all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. This is the testimony that can produce that. Nothing else can. And when we reject this testimony, we've called God a liar. Because God has no other means to convict you in your heart that Jesus Christ is his son. That's what John is saying. If you will not accept the testimony that cannot be denied, that cannot be refuted by honest minds, then in effect you have made God a liar because you have not believed the testimony that he has given of his son. And then he adds, and this is the testimony that God has given us what is it? Eternal life. And this life is in his son. You see, in the testimony about which John writes, in that testimony, we are told that we have something in promise that we can learn about nowhere else other than in the testimony that God has given us. What is that promise? Eternal life. J.C. referred to it in his very fine prayer tonight, expressing thanksgiving to God for the promise that we have of eternal life. And that's what it is. It is a promise. 
We do not have eternal life in reality now that cannot be taken from us. And we've, we have visited this point at times past, and rightfully so, because the prevalent teaching in the religious world, much of it today, is that we do have eternal life in reality and that nothing can change the reality of the eternal life that we now possess. In other words, it is the once saved, always saved contention that is made by so many. Once you're saved, you're always saved. You have eternal life and no one can take that from you. That's the contention. That is not what John means when he writes here that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. It is obviously conditional. The eternal life about which John writes that he says we have is obviously conditional. Why? Because that life is in his Son and whoever is not in his Son does not have that Life, and that's verse 12 here, the verse with which we conclude tonight. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He who keeps on believing, he keeps on having the Son of God. But he can reject the Son of God. He can turn his back upon the Son of God. He can leave the service of the Son of God. You remember what Paul, if Paul be the writer of Hebrews, the Hebrews writer nonetheless, wrote to the Hebrews in, in Hebrews 10, 25 beginning, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's writing to those who had the Son of God in their lives, but have now turned their backs upon the Son of God. And for them, he says, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins. What does remain? Verse 27, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? To whom is he writing? He's writing to those who were Christians. He's writing to those who were Christians and he's saying, by forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, you are trampling underfoot the Son of God, counting the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. Do those who have done that still have eternal life as John writes about it here? No. Why not? Because they don't have the Son. They've turned their back upon the Son. And in turning their back upon the Son, they've turned their back upon the life that is only found in the Son. And that's a tragedy beyond description. He who does not have the Son does not have life. A few verses to reinforce the fact that eternal life is ours only in promise. All the way back, remember, to the earlier part of this epistle... In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 25, we talked about it then, obviously, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. The same writer in the same epistle who is now writing, he who has the Son has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life, cannot be saying that 
The Christian has eternal life unconditionally and it can never be taken from him because the same writer in an earlier chapter at chapter 2 and verse 25 says this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. Eternal life is ours in promise. In Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes to Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which is according to godliness, listen to it, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In what of eternal life? In hope of eternal life. We live in hope of eternal life. We don't live having eternal life unconditionally. We live in hope of eternal life. We live with the promise of eternal life. And what is hope? Is hope something you already have? Or is hope something for which you yearn? Hope, remember, biblically defined is desire coupled with expectation. We don't hope for something we already have. And Titus 1-2 says we live in hope of eternal life. Therefore, we don't have eternal life right now. We only have it as long as we have the Son as long as we're in Him. But when we turn our back upon Him, we no longer have the Son, and therefore we no longer have eternal life. One final passage, Romans eight twenty four. remember? We've looked at it before. Paul there writes concerning this matter of hope, for we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Well, that settles it, doesn't it? The same writer in Titus 1-2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God has promised before time began. In hope of eternal life. The same writer says, You don't hope for something you already see. Therefore, we don't already have eternal life unconditionally. We have it in promise as long as we have the Son. And who, who, he who does not have the Son has no life. No life. No life. Oh, you're living and you're breathing, but you don't have life. Not really. Not really. I am come that they might have life, Jesus said, and that they might have it more abundantly. John 10, 10. Wouldn't you like to have that life? about which Jesus spoke, the life about which the New Testament writers spoke in promise, you can have it in promise, and the comfort that comes from that hope that can be yours this very night by becoming a Christian if you haven't done so, by coming home to your first love if you need to do that in repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly. As one who's outside of Christ, we plead with you to express your faith in Him and the evidence to prove that He is the Christ is overwhelming. Act upon the evidence and by faith, repent, confess, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do so. And as we said, if you need to come home to your first love, that we might pray with you and for you as God welcomes you home, will you come as we stand to sing to encourage you.